As I was sitting in my chair, thinking about the next 30 minutes and what a privilege it is to open God's Word for you, there, there may be no nobler task than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that. I thank you for giving me the opportunity. If you don't like the way I preach, that's okay. I'm not the normal preacher. Uh, Jeremy Martinson, who is up here doing the child dedications, is. Um, and nevertheless, it's a great privilege to be here, be with you. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have gathered us together. I thank you for these children. Thank you that not only were there three birth children here, but there was an adoptive child here. Thank you that you are the first adopter, that you were the premier adopter, that you have adopted us into your family. We were once far off, but now through the blood of Christ we have been brought near and are called heirs. What a marvel. What a marvel that we who were not children were made not only children, but heirs. We glorify you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, each year we start a new sermon series called CORE. And this series will run the entire course of the calendar year as we occasionally come back to it time and time again over the course of the year. It's made up of six now topical sermons. Last year it was five. You may have noticed we've, we've added one. They are scripture, missions and evangelism, service and community, prayer, worship, and then newly added this year, suffering. The reason that we do this is because these are all critical aspects of the Christian life. If you've been at Grace City Church long, you know that discipleship is an important part of what we do here. It's, it's a valuable part of what we do. And so it's suitable that we have a sermon series on the core aspects of the Christian life. Things are at the very heart of discipleship. You could probably even call this series core discipleship. Scripture, missions and community, or excuse me, service and community, missions and evangelism, prayer, worship, suffering. All at the heart of what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, each year we start this series by first looking at the first of these core discipleship elements, namely Scripture. Most of us are probably starting a new Bible reading program in January. If, if you've been at Grace City Church long, you know that in January we start out a new reading program. This year we're, we're in the book of Genesis for the month of January. And it's, so it's suitable then that we have a new discipleship sermon on Scripture to catapult us into another year of Bible reading and memorizing and meditation and prayer. And so today, as we look at the subject of Scripture, I, I want to answer the question, why? Why the Bible? Why do we carry, carry 
Why do we care so much about this book? Why do we carry it with us when we come into this room? Why do we place copies of it back on the table that you can take one when you come in and open it and follow along as, as we preach? And Lord willing, take it home with you. We would, we would like that. Why do we travel with this book? Why is it the most recognizable book on the planet? Why do we place it on our nightstands or our coffee tables that it's within easy reach? Why do we install apps on our phones and our iPads of Bible apps and then, and then we put the icon on the first page of all the apps? Or you install Logos or Accordance on your computer and it's, and it's on the quick start menu all the way over so it's the first one there. Why do we have a core sermon on Scripture? Is it, is it because it makes us better people? Is it because it teaches us helpful things for our lives? Is it because it makes us better parents, better fathers and mothers? Is it because it teaches us how to deal with stress and disappointment and anger? Is it because it makes us better at our jobs and our vocations? Is it, is it because it helps us to deal with disappointment and stress and avoid sin? No. All of those things are true, for sure. But is that the most significant thing about this book? Is that the most that can be said about the Bible? Well, if those are your primary goals in coming to this book, you have settled for something of nominal value compared to the great alternative that is held out to you. Better lives, better people, helpful principles for jobs and families are all wonderful, and they do not hold a candle to seeing the glory of God in the pages of this book. To know him from this book. This book is about God. It reveals him to us. It shows us God and what he's like. That's why we have so much affection for this book. Our desire is to know him and for our affections for him to be raised. And so when we marvel at the wisdom in this book, we're marveling at the wisdom of God. When we're shocked by the beauty of the plan of redemption, we're shocked by the beauty of God. When we're stupefied by the childlike simplicity of the Bible and its unreachable depths of complexity, we're shocked by its author. This book is about him. He is the subject, he is the author, he is the illuminator of this book. The Bible is his self-disclosure to us. The triune God is the most distinctive reality of Christianity. 
Father, Son, and Spirit at the very heart of Christian theology. Listen, not merely as a doctrinal element. Not merely as an article within our statement of faith. God is the most important player. He's the most important player to your discipleship, your worship, your missional communities. Oh, how I hope that you talk and think and meditate about God in your missional communities. He's the most important player in your service, your prayer. Simply put, God is the epicenter of Christian faith both doctrinally and experientially. In a sense, Christianity is a singularity. It's God. It's Him. It's about Him. Within the church, it's easy, and I would say probably even common, for us to be captivated with lesser things. Good things. Easy things. Safe Safe things, things that we can control and manage and get a grip on and comprehend. Safe things like community and discipleship and service and eschatology and totally miss the face of God. Many good things can become the main thing. Our faith must contain the right elements, but those elements might be, must be in the right priority. And God must trump them all, however unsafe, unmanageable, and uncontrollable He is. We can do many right things and be completely man-centered, going about our business of doing church and be all about us. For example, we could read this book with the primary goal of being more like Jesus, a very good thing in the wrong position. We could read this book with the goal of accumulating wisdom and knowledge to defend the faith, a very good thing in the wrong position. You could read the book out of a sense of duty, Duty's good, isn't it? But imagine sitting next to your spouse out of duty, ignorant of her beauty and grace. And so, too, we can read this book and never gaze upon the face of God. So why the Bible? Why do we care so much about this book? Because this book reveals God to us. That's why we're passionate about this book. That's why we're passionate about studying and reading and meditating on this book. That's why we're passionate about theology. Jeremy, what's the most important subject someone can give himself to the study of? Easy, theology. Because God is in a different universe of categorical importance than everything else. Good things for sure, but lesser things. If you took the scales of importance and beauty and glory and worth and, in, and on one side of the scale you put God, the scale falls, and then you took all other things, everything else that the universe contains, and you put it on the other side of the scale, the scale doesn't move. 
because everything else is derivative from Him, the great I am. God is the centerpiece of our faith. The true and living God must be the most central aspect of our faith. To know Him, to know God, is what it means to be a Christian. To know Him more than anything else, that's what it means to be a Christian, to know Him. The church is made up of people who know God and are known by Him. To be a Christian is most fundamentally not about holding a right set of beliefs and affirming a doctrinal statement. It's to know the author and the subject of this book personally. You may even know Christians who who say, yep, I believe these things, and yet it's clear they've never encountered or known the living God. So important. It's at the very heart of the matter This is what separates Christianity and the church from everything else. It's a people who know the living God. More than that, we esteem and value and glorify God over all things because we know Him. Our knowing Him is the ground for our esteeming and glorifying Him. If you think very little of God, if you think very little of Him, it's probably because you think very little about Him. Knowledge of Him is the fuel and the kindling of our worship. If the fire of our worship burns Dimly, it's likely that our small thinking of God has deprived us of the necessary fuel. Simply put, there is nothing more important and delightful than Him. Everyone is, listen to me, everyone is and everyone must be a theologian. Because God is the very center of reality. He's the very epicenter of not only Christianity, but of reality. If we get this right, so much will fall into place. God is the most fundamental reality. That's why he introduces himself as I am who I am. He is the uttermost is He is the first and true being. Everything else is derivative. God's existence is uncaused, unstarted, unending, unchanging. He's not from anything. He exists of himself, before all things, over all things, for all things. He's the first cause. Everything else is effect. Creation, all that you see, time, matter, motion, are all byproducts of the great I am. God is the first in supreme reality. That means creation is an anomaly. Creation is the surprise. 
Creation is Johnny-come-lately. Creation is the upstart. If we zoom out from God and all of reality, it's easier to believe in the existence of God than to believe in the existence of you. Creation became, but God is. And so to be apart from him is what incompleteness is. It's like being light with no light. It's an empty vessel. It's a scentless fragrance. It's to cease to be what you are. When all things were made from him and through him and to be apart from him is the definition of meaninglessness and emptiness and void. And so everything has its relation or its reality in relation to God. Everything has its reality in relation to God. He's the, he's the pivot point around everything else moves. Any thought that you think that doesn't account for the reality of God is an incomplete thought. It's an incomplete thought. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things. That means this pulpit, my lips, the oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide that comes out of my mouth that causes my vocal cords to move, that creates sounds that land in your ears, that you understand to have meaning, that creates thoughts in your head. It's all about him. It's all for him, regardless of whether or not we even acknowledge it so. It's about him. If we think about love and we haven't thought about it in, re in relation to God, we've never had a serious thought about love. If we think about nature and we haven't thought about it in light of the reality of God, we haven't even begun to think about nature. If we think about video games and you're good at them and you think you know them and you've never thought about video games in light of the reality of God, you know nothing about video games. You're like an Olympic swimmer in a pool that he knows well, not realizing a leviathan lurks beneath you. Don't tell me that swimmer knows about that pool if he doesn't know about the leviathan. Everything has its reality in relation to God. No thought is sane if it hasn't been thought about in light of the reality and glory of God that's how pervasive he is to this world. That's how meaningful he is to this world. If we work, we work unto the Lord. If we sin, we sin against him. Our holiness is not measured against our peers, but against God. For he said, be holy, for I am holy. Our service is in the strength that he supplies. So that others see our good works and what? Give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's God who works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. It's about him. Everything finds its ultimate end and goal in the great I am. In spite of all that, all of us, especially some of us, all of us, though, 
have a vision of God that's too small, too weak, too much like us, too confined by our own presuppositions, our own culture, our own bad reading, our own bad Sunday school lessons, too informed by our perceived needs, self-help, too perceived by our own rights, and too little informed by the Bible. It grieves me to say that if anything can be said of American evangelical Christianity, it's that there is such a lack of serious thinking about God. If Christianity and reality itself is about God, then to miss Him is a tragedy of incalculable measure. It's almost unspeakable. So, why all that? Jeremy, isn't this supposed to be a sermon on Scripture? Yes. So why all this talk about God? Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Romans 19 and 20 says that God's eternal power and His divine nature is visible from all creation Creation testifies to the existence of God in such a way that no man is excused when he says, I don't believe in God. Creation steps forth and takes the stand and says, that's a lie. I declared him to you. I proclaimed his existence to you. But creation does not communicate to us all that there is to know about God. It doesn't communicate to us his love. His extraordinary, extraordinary love. It doesn't communicate to us his sovereign reign, his answer, his gentle and merciful answer to our prayers. It doesn't communicate to us his obedience-fueling promises. It doesn't communicate his holiness. It doesn't tell us of his aseity, that is his absolute and utter self-sufficiency, his total and complete independence from anyone or anything. Creation doesn't tell us of the sun or the cross or the pardon of grace that we have on account of the blood, the spilt blood of Jesus. Creation tells us none of those things, but the Bible does. Scripture does. This book does. This book shows us all of that and 10,000 more mysteries for us to marvel at the glory of God if we have eyes to see. And so if your desire is to see the fullness of the glory of God this side of heaven, however much that's possible, your eyes must eventually find their way to the book. There's no other place it can be seen. And so you must read. God is our ultimate treasure, and when our ultimate treasure gives to us a gift that points 
back to the giver, that is a very good gift. And that's what the Bible is. It's his self-proclamation. It's his self-revelation. It's his announcement to us, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. And it's so much better and so different than you could have possibly hoped or imagined or dreamed. And so the reason I want to encourage you to read the Bible in 2020 is because I want you to feast on the glories of God that are contained in it. We don't come to the table for the sake of the table. We don't come to the Bible for the Bible's sake. We come to the table for the sake of the banquet that's before us. And so I hope that you gorge yourself on the glories of God in the pages of Scripture. Now, I got about 10 minutes to go. Where do we go from here? This is where I stopped in my preparation. I said, okay, what, what's next? And two, two thoughts lingered in my mind. I, I could tell you how to read the Bible and see the glories of God. Or, or I could just show you and try to give you examples. And that's, that's what I want to try to do, is show you and give you examples. Uh, because in January, we are reading the book of Genesis as a church. If you're not involved in that, get on Slack. I hope that, that we'll post something about it after today. Uh, get on Slack and join the Bible reading plan Slack channel. And we're reading the book of Genesis together in the, book of, uh, in the month of January. And then in Exodus, or excuse me, in then in Acts, in February, so we're doing Genesis in January, and then in February we're reading Acts, and then Exodus in the book of March. That means in the first two-thirds of 2022, we're reading Genesis and Exodus. And so what I want to do to one of the main plot lines that holds these two books together in Genesis and Exodus and, and show you how it declares the glory of God to show you how God is put on display, his, his marvelous deeds and character is put on display in these, in these books of the Bible, starting from about Genesis 37. So, so quick catch up to where we're at. Um, in, 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 in Genesis uh, 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham and he promises that he's going to give him land and descendants and he's going to make him a great nation, and he's going to be a blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. But first, his people are going to be captives in a foreign land for 400 years before God delivers them out of that captivity and brings them to the land of Canaan. That story really starts in Genesis 37. And so what I did this week as I read Genesis 37 through the end of that story, which ends around in, in um, Exodus 12 or so, and I just, I just wrote down everything I observed about the great I Am, and I just want to share that with you, that you can see his glories. So this is Genesis 37, the story of Joseph through the Exodus, what we learn about the great I Am. He knows the future. He communicates it through dreams and visions, 37, 5, and 9. He raises up kings 
and places people into positions of authority. And he also brings them low and humbles them and judges them that his name would be known and glorified. 37, 7, 45, 9, 9, 16. He ordains the intentional evil actions of human agents and intends them for good outcomes. Exodus 37, 18, 45, 7. Oh, how that reality should give us radical hope in the face of injustice. He establishes success or failure in our endeavors and our vocations. 39, 2 and 3 and 23, God determines the outcome of our labors, not you. Success at work, praise the great I am. He blesses the ungodly on account of the godly, 39, 3 and 4, 14, 4. He governs human decision, he governs the human decision making even when those decisions are of sinful intent while never being the tempter or the author of sin. Genesis 45, 5 through 8. Parents, I hope that you hear that and are infused with radical godly hope for your children. That's incredible fuel for prayer. He summons famines and years of plenty. He determines their length and their severity. He controls the world's Food supply, Genesis 41. He gives wisdom and understanding to men and he deprives them of it as he sees fit. 41, 39. He eases trauma. Pain. And the memory of past suffering, Genesis 41, 51. Foster parents, adoptive parents, do you hear that? He eases trauma and pain and suffering of past experiences. He preserves life and sustains it, and he takes it and removes it. He governs life and death, both the manner and the time. Life and death over animals, Exodus 7, 18, 8, 6, 8, 16. Plants, Exodus 3, 2. Humans, even infant babies, 38, 7, 45, 7, 50, 20. Oh, mothers, take comfort in knowing that this God also did not withhold his only son from you. He gives descendants. He opens the womb and closes it. 46, 3, 1, 21. Four child dedications here and another baby born last week, I think. God did that. That was God's doing. He governs the locations of where people live, 46.3, 48.21. He makes wealthy and poor alike, even transferring their wealth from one to another. If you have a home, food, clothing, cars, extra money for leisure, God has lavished that upon you. Most of us in this room are extraordinarily wealthy Oh, how gratitude should pour from our lips. God did it, not us. He esteems 
the lowly and raises them up, and he brings low the esteemed according to his good pleasure. He is faithful to his promises. Listen to this. He's, he is faithful to his promises in ways that involve the movements of people, nations, borders, kings, families, descendants, battles, all to keep his promises. There is never a time when God says, that's too difficult for me. I'm sorry. Nations will move if necessary. While never incurring guilt or sin, he causes people to behave shrewdly, even against his chosen and elect people. Exodus 1.18, and go read Psalm 105 and how that tells the story of the Exodus. He is the rewarder of the faithful and those who fear him. He's altogether holy and unique from us. That's at the very heart of what holiness is, set-apartness. It's, it's not merely about purity, righteousness, freedom from the stain of sin, but, but separateness, uniqueness, otherness. God is the premier other. He's set apart from us in his specialness. R.C. Sproul is right, I think, when he says that God is the ultimate object of our xenophobia. And that meeting him may be our greatest trauma. We are fearful creatures worrying about hardships and snakes and spiders, calamity and demons, and yet unmediated God is the ultimate terror. He is holy and we are not. And thanks be to God that we have a mediator, Jesus Christ. He is eternal. That was Exodus 3.6. He is eternal and unchanging. There's never a time when he didn't exist, nor there will be a time when he doesn't. And through all that, he never changes. He is the same, both in essence and in mind. He never has a change of heart, makes a mistake, grows weary or tired, never bursts into fits of anger. He never gets distracted, never forgets his promises, never breaks them, never changes his habits, never ceases to be good, never expires his love. 3.14. He's aware of our sufferings and is compassionate. 3.7. He's a deliverer and rescuer. 3.8. Not only from the consequences of sin, but eventually even from the hardships of this world. He appears as an angel of the Lord. Both different from God, while at the same time being identified as Yahweh. You probably remember that from Zechariah. He turns the hearts of his enemies to favor his people. He turns the hearts of his enemies to favor people. Exodus 3, 21 and 22. Oh, how we are so protective over our supposed free will. But God reigns, and he does all that he pleases. He turns the hearts as he sees fit. What could give us more hope to fuel our prayers than that reality? He causes people to reject him for his own glory. 
4.21. He determines who is mute and deaf and blind and seen and diseased, 3.21 and 22, or excuse me, Exodus 4.11 and 9.10. He determines who has CP. No one knows this truth of this text and this reality more in this room than our brother Paul. And over and over and over again, I have seen how the truth of this text has sunk the roots of faith into the ground of steadfastfulness for him. And do you know what it usually results in? Worship. Worship in the midst of his suffering, knowing that God gave him CP. Worship. That's what Paul does. He governs the waters of the earth, 719. Hail and storms and thunder, 923. Wind, 1013. He governs the sun, 1022. He raises up kings for the very purposes of showing his power, 916. He hardened whom he hardens, and he has mercy on whom he has mercy, showing us that it does not depend on human decision or on human effort, but on God who has mercy, 916. He traps mud in chariot wheels. He traps mud in chariot wheels. You think about that the next time you're in a stuck car. And know that what was for their undoing is for your good. He executes judgment. 12-12, Exodus 12-12. He is extraordinarily kind and compassionate and merciful. And he provides an escape from judgment. Not on the basis of status, merit, or reward. Not because of vocation, or talent, or skill. Not on account of family size, skin color, or age. Not because of his indebtedness to you, or obligation, or oversight. But merely on account of the blood of a slaughtered lamb. He foreshadows a time when another lamb, Jesus Christ, would be sacrificed to escape judgment for all of those who put their trust in him. That's Exodus 37 through, or Genesis 37 through Exodus 14. All of that marvel about our God. 25 chapters. There are 1,189 chapters in this book that each proclaim the excellencies of God. We have only started. Over and over again, the Lord tells us why these things occurred in these texts. He says, so that they will know. So that they will know. So that they will no. The purpose of those events is not different than the purpose of their having been recorded for us. They were recorded that we would know Yahweh. That we would know that Yahweh is God. Knowing Him is good, indeed. But Knowing must culminate in worship. 
And that's another core sermon. So let's pray together. You are above all things. We are small and you are great. We are weak and you are strong. We are changing and you are never changing. And so we give you glory and honor and power and thanksgiving to you, mighty God. Would you glorify yourself in these people? As we submit ourselves to you, we acknowledge your vastness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying your life down for us. That though you are different from us, we have been brought near by your blood. Amen. Let me stand together. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of your greatness, the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever.